This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few minutes, we'll open up our phone lines for your questions about impaired driving. Just here in Vancouver, over 100 drivers were nicked for DUI in the first week of Operation Counterattack a few weeks ago, and that number will only go up over the next few days. So while there's never an issue with reasonable surveillance by the police, especially when it comes to protecting us from impaired drivers, it's not always as one way or the other as it might seem to be. And that's where criminal defense lawyers like our first guest, Kyla Lee, become important. In our second hour today, the president and CEO of the Automotive Retailers Association, Adrian Scoffel, will hopefully convince some of our listeners to reconsider their career paths. You will be shocked by some of his statistics. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. And we begin with the top Boxing Day sellers on Amazon this year. As if you haven't had enough shopping news. Well, here's a final kick in the teeth for you. This this includes uh, the, uh, the list, by the way, is topped by the Echo Show, the little Alexa management device that does a whole lot for 65 bucks. Sow and grow plant kits, mostly sweet peppers, for under $18. And you get to eat the finished product number two on the list. Also very popular this year, the Ancestry Genetic Testing Ethnicity Kit. For 80 bucks and eight weeks, you too get to discover your roots. And for those constantly running out of storage space on their devices, there's a Samsung portable USB that could turn out to be the best hundred bucks you ever spent. Other big hits online this year, an elite gaming mouse, extra thick yoga mats for under 20 bucks, a new electric toothbrush, handheld cordless vacuum, and a home surveillance camera kit, hugely popular because it's under $35. Sears has sold its die-hard car battery brand as the retailer continues to struggle to raise cash. Sears will still sell die-hard products as long as they're not specific to cars like a line of die-hard boots they're already selling. $200 million bucks was the purchase price by Advance Auto Parts, who say they plan to sell the die-hard batteries in 4,800 stores and and also plan to expand the brand into batteries for other types of vehicles. You may recall two years ago, Sears sold its Craftsman Tools line, again to raise cash, and it didn't help much. And Sears, which had 4,000 stores at its peak, filed for bankruptcy and is now down to less than 200 stores. A classic lesson in ignoring major industry changes and literally being passed by. Oh, here's a fabulous Canadian Christmas story. In Newfoundland and Labrador this year, a plane full of WestJet passengers en route from St. John's to Toronto was diverted to a small town airfield at Deer Lake due to a very bad storm. Some passengers lucked into a flight soon after landing, but about 80 of them were stranded on Christmas Day in a Holiday Inn that had no restaurant for the better part of the day. The local Salvation Army heard of their plight, put out the word for a little bit of help, and in the finest of come-from-away tradition, within an hour... 
the hotel lobby was the scene of a huge buffet dinner set up by local folks who literally brought food from their tables to help out the passengers. There were even a few sandwiches left over for people to take with them on the plane. Local folks created a convoy of vehicles and drove all the stranded passengers back to their little airport and loaded them on a plane. The Salvation Army officer who started the effort said after it was over, he was surprised by how fast everyone moved to help out. The fact they showed up, he says, never in doubt. Here in Newfoundland, said the major, that's just what we do. And here's a reminder. We did this a couple of months ago, and I'll bet you've already forgotten. If you haven't already heard, Concord's New Year's Eve Vancouver Fireworks is taking a one-year hiatus this year, which means there will not be major public celebration fireworks event at the waterfront next Tuesday night in downtown Vancouver. We first told you about this in October when event organizers announced they're all refocusing their efforts and resources on moving the fireworks show from Coal Harbor to East False Creek Inner Harbor between Camby Street and Science World in Concord Pacific Place. And ooh la la, it's going to be such a show. Just next year, there will be nothing this year. Please keep that in mind and pass the word, because I'll bet you come Tuesday night, maybe around 9 or 10 o'clock, there's going to be more than a few hundred people down at the waterfront going, and it's about the fireworks. Not this year. Got to wait one more year. That is the a few a look at a few of the top consumers of the Dory of the day. We'll have a look at more as the show goes on. But coming right up, we welcome back criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee here to take your calls and answer your questions about your rights and mine when it comes to impaired driving. This is Vancouver Consumer, and you've got it where it should be on CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer for our last show of 2019, our last weekend at least of 2019. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, Kyla Lee, criminal defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Compliments of the season and welcome back to Vancouver Consumer, Kyla. Thank you for having me back. Well, it's it's great to have you back. I was doing the CKNW morning show this week and uh, Kyla and I had a six-minute conversation on Monday morning about a story that caught the eye of just about every driver in British Columbia. So we're going to take a minute, if you don't mind, Kyla, and go back because... This deals with an Operation Counterattack roadblock, among other things, and you can bet your bottom dollar we'll see a few of those around Metro Vancouver this evening. So this is still quite real and quite possible under other circumstances. As I understand the story, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will, uh, <laughs> this, this uh, mom and dad living up in Nelson, up in the Kootenays, decide to step out on the town, have a little Christmas uh, evening with their friends and neighbors, and off they go. Eventually, towards the later part of the evening, they realize we probably shouldn't drive home. So they call the house. Their 22-year-old son is at home, and they say, Junior, we're in a bit of a pickle. Can you come give us a ride? He says, of course. So off he goes across town, picks up mom and dad. Dad's in the back seat. Mom's sitting beside him in the front seat. And on the way home, they're stopped at an Operation Counterattack roadblock. And of course, the standard question is, have you had anything to drink tonight, sir? And the young man says, no. I'm here fetching my parents. And the young man, as it turns out, has an L license, a learner. is one of those graduated licensing things, and he has an L. If you're a driver with an L, Kyla, you have to have 
uh, registered uh, licensed driver, age 25 or over, on the front seat beside you, the L driving person, correct? That's correct. Okay, so mom was over 25 and a a registered licensed driver, but also, well, not in the best of shape. (laughs) And and so the, uh, the, the officer at the scene... Uh, declared this to be wrong, illegal, wrote the young man a ticket, and impounded their vehicle at the roadside. And I guess they took a cab home. Yes. So uh, there's a lot. That's a really loaded case. All I can tell you, friends, is that about three or four days after this event happened, and it hit the media... And people like me <laughs> doing morning radio in Vancouver took one look at this and went, really, come on. Uh, and so the superiors of the officer who wrote the ticket and impounded the vehicle, Kyla, have reversed the decision. The vehicle has been returned. The ticket has been torn up. What's the law in this case? That You surprised me first thing on a Monday morning by saying that in British Columbia, the law is different than everywhere else in Canada. And in British Columbia, that young 22-year-old man who drove across town to fetch mom and dad because they needed his help was doing something perfectly legal. Is that not true? It is true. If you are driving in British Columbia and you have your L and you have a supervisor in the passenger seat, they don't have to be sober. They don't have to be awake. They don't have to be medically fit to take over the vehicle. As long as they're 25 and they have a license and they're sitting in the passenger seat, that's good enough. And the rest of Canada requires the supervisor to also be capable of taking over control of the vehicle, Mm -hmm. requires them to be sober, requires them to be awake and paying attention to what you're doing. And in this case, the officer's excuse was that the registered driver, in this case, mum, sitting on the front seat, a smallish car, was in a position, could have been in a position to reach over and grab the steering wheel and affect the outcome of the driver's whatever behavior. And thus, it was shut down on the spot. That's, I mean, that's a nonsense excuse to me. That sounds like a retroactive justification on the part of the officer, in my opinion, because the reality is that if there is a risk posed by an impaired person sitting in the passenger seat, that applies whether or not the driver has an L or the driver has a full license or the driver is a professional driver with a class one license Mm -hmm. or a taxi driver. Um, And if that were the case, then nobody could ever act as a designated driver. That can't be the way that the law is intended. And in fact, the law looks at what your intentions are when you're occupying a vehicle. Yes, there's a risk when an impaired person is in a vehicle that they might take over the vehicle, but the risk has to be realistic. And if your behavior is arranging for a sober driver, having somebody who's responsible, able to drive the vehicle who doesn't have any alcohol in your body, then the risk is not realistic at all. That's right. You're doing everything humanly possible to to not be a public menace behind the wheel of anything. Exactly. And the law shouldn't punish people who are trying to do the right thing. I mean, it completely defeats the purpose of having impaired driving laws and having, having people take these steps to punish them for doing what they're supposed to be doing in the circumstances. So in this case now, the, the uh, arresting officer clearly did not know the law. So how does that enforcer of the law get disciplined internally by his superiors, if at all? You're closer to this than most of us. 
Well, I think it's deeply concerning anytime you have a police officer who doesn't know what the law is. And in those circumstances, it really calls out for the officer to be retrained. And that is a form of discipline that can be done under the Police Act um, in British Columbia. Any police officer who does something wrong as a result of not understanding what the law is can go be sent back for retraining. And that might be something very informal, like sit down and read the Motor Vehicle Act, because clearly you haven't. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it might be something more formal, going back to a training institution and taking another course in how to do something. Okay. Uh, if if the uh, his superiors had not reversed their decision and the case had gone forward to some kind of, well, it would have not gone necessarily to trial, but it would have gone forward to possibly the superintendent of motor vehicles. That's where most of the stuff usually starts before it goes to trial. If that case had gone forward, would you have taken it on? Oh, absolutely. This is the type of case where clearly the person needs a defense. Um, They've been treated wrongly. And I think any lawyer has a responsibility to step up and say, yeah, I'm going to help this person if I have the ability to do so and the know-how. Okay. Now let's talk about that uh, Operation Counterattack roadblock that many of us could very well indeed see tonight on our uh, messing around town and getting socialized and doing all that holiday fun stuff. What are your rights when you come around a corner, they always set these things up so that as soon as you come around a corner and there's the lights and the cars and the pylons, you go, oh, brother, it's a roadblock. And you generally can't deke out. They've got you in some kind of funnel that if you try to escape, they have chase cars waiting for people like you. Mm-hmm. So when you roll into this, you, the, as soon as you see that you're there, you've just you've got to go with the flow because if you try and bolt they'll chase you down. Yep. That that's that's your that's the first clue that this person is probably impaired or not altogether the way he or she should be. Oh, and I see that all the time, uh, cases where officers pull people over because they turned just before a roadblock. Right. Or they pulled into a parking lot and stopped at the middle of the night when a business is closed and there's a roadblock up the road. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like admitting that you have something to hide. Right. And it's, uh, if, they, if they do that, if, if the, you see the, the roadblock a half a mile up ahead and it's impossible to miss, and you go, oh, geez, maybe we'll just park and, you know, come back, just catch a nap, come back, wake up in a couple hours and go home. That's as long as they're not stopping you, as long as you pull your car over safely, there's nothing they can do, right? They can still, as long as you've been in care and control of the vehicle. So you've been driving it within the preceding three hours. They have the right to investigate you for impaired driving. And they always have the right to stop people to investigate sobriety, licensing, insurance, and fitness to drive. Okay. So now, um, when I roll into this roadblock tonight, what, what behavior is it recommended that I adopt? In other words, Follow instructions is usually usually about what you're supposed to do. Any other sage bits of advice? Uh, number one, produce your license and registration for the vehicle. When you're asked to do so, you are legally obligated to produce those documents. Okay. You're also legally obligated to state your name and address and the name and address of the registered owner of the vehicle. Beyond that, don't say anything to the police officer. You're probably going to be asked something like, where are you coming from tonight? Sure. Have you had anything to drink tonight? You bet, yeah. And just don't answer the questions. It's worse to lie than it is to uh, to stay silent. They can never use your silence against you. So if you just say nothing or you say, officer, I'm not going to answer your questions, that's well within your rights. Oh, it is. 
And it can't be held against you. It's just kind of like we don't have it in Canada, but it's like pleading the fifth at the roadside, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's not illegal. That's not illegal. And our legal system recognizes that if you follow that, if you say, I'm not going to talk to you, that can't be held against you. Whereas if you say to the officer, oh, yeah, I had a drink but four hours ago. Sure. And then later on, you're trying to argue that you didn't drink enough to be over the limit or that you re- had a recent drink that impacted your test results. Your false statement to the police can be used against you because it's a prior inconsistent statement, whereas silence is golden. But I, I, I appreciate that. But in, from again, from the point of view of the, uh, the officer on the scene, your reluctance, that would be his word, to cooperate is being seen as belligerent behavior. Sometimes, yes, although police officers, again, are required to know the law and they're required to understand that people don't have an obligation to answer them. And if they try and characterize a refusal to answer questions as belligerence, they're going to look worse than you're going to look by exercising your rights, because it's not belligerent to say I have a right to say nothing and I'm exercising that right. Interesting stuff. And I don't know. Do you know that people know that, Kyla? I didn't know that. I I thought that I, I, I was under the impression that you could basically keep to yourself legally, but I was also under the impression that that sort of reluctant uh, uh, attitude would be seen as a negative and, and held against me. A lot of people don't understand that. And it's a real shame because they end up saying something that's not truthful, which is probably the worst thing that you can do. Um, and and then getting in a, a worse situation as a result of that because they have to walk back what they said as opposed to just saying nothing and, and having that protect them. It's like a shield. Right, right, right. The, sil- the shield of silence. And now, if at this point you are seen to be by the officer on the scene as uncooperative, she stopped talking to me, Your Honor. So I took the next step. I assumed that to be some indication of impairment, and so I ordered a roadside sobriety test. You must comply, correct? Yes, you are legally obligated to provide a breath sample into a roadside breathalyzer or a saliva sample into a roadside saliva tester or to participate in the physical sobriety test roadside. Whatever the officer demands you do, you are legally obligated to do. And if you don't, the consequences of not doing it are worse than producing a failed result, worse than being convicted of impaired driving in court. Is that right? And and what are the consequences? What is that called in criminal law? It's called a refusal to comply with a demand, and the consequence is a $2,000 minimum fine, a one-year minimum driving prohibition, and a criminal record. Wow. And I, I, does this happen fairly often? I guess in some cases, people get pretty smashed and pretty angry when they get caught and uh, lash out in all sorts of ways. And I'm not even talking about physical. I'm just talking verbal uh, and, and get themselves into sounds like an awful lot of trouble, kind of. It does. It does happen a lot. And people often, you know, sometimes because they've been drinking or using drugs, sometimes just because they feel like being defiant with the police, refuse to comply with these orders that they're obligated to comply with. And it's very difficult to defend a case um, where somebody has just outright said, I'm not going to blow or I'm not going to do the test. Whereas if they took the test, there's all these defenses available about the reliability of the test, a violation of your rights and how the tests were taken, things that can affect the outcome of the test, the way the test was done. All of those things can can come into play in your case. And you actually have more defenses if you comply, legally speaking, than if you just say, I'm not going to do it. Right. At least if you comply and you've got some test results, you've got something to argue 
Whereas if you refuse to comply, that's a crime and that's, that's, that's a slam dunk from the prosecution too, isn't it? It is very difficult. I have succeeded in them, but it's been hard. <laughs> Our guest in studio this afternoon is Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Ms. Lee is a criminal defense attorney and you just mentioned pot and there's a new survey out about younger people particularly and their attitudes towards driving while impaired on cannabis rather than alcohol. They see it as being two different things and it isn't. Welcome back to the program for a Saturday afternoon. Criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee is in studio from the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. The phones are open. We had a couple of callers already waiting. Bob, you're up first. We'll get to your call in just a second. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Kyla, just before we get to Bob's call, we talked about, you touched on this just before we went to the news break, about pot and driving uh, while impaired by cannabis rather than alcohol. There's a new study out. You, you told me about it, and I looked it up, and it's the Canadian Automobile Association. And they've got, they say, we need more education for young people when it comes to cannabis and driving. Apparently, about a quarter of Canadians between the ages of 18 and 34 have either driven high or have been a passenger in a car with a driver who is high. And also, fewer people in that age group surveyed say it's important to plan a safe ride home after using cannabis than after having used alcohol. If you plan to consume cannabis this holiday season, don't drive, says the Canadian Automobile Association. Make an alternate arrangement just like you would for drive, for drinking. And that's where you come in, right? You would, you would echo that advice. I would echo that advice, not maybe for the same reasons that the CAA suggests, but I would, you know, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're going to end up facing a potential impaired driving charge. So it's always best, even if you feel like you're fine, um, to just make the arrangements, plan ahead, get a sober driver, call a taxi, do whatever you need to get home safely. And of course, we're still using... Uh, the authorities are still using what you would probably describe generously as um, controversial testing devices that uh, have varying degrees of accuracy that could be skillfully argued down in court. So there's that end of it as well, isn't there? There is that end of it. There's the Drager Drug Test 5000, which we've seen has given false positives for CBD, which is a non-impairing substance right. for poppy seed bagels and for coca tea. Um, so there are lots of circumstances in which you can get a false reading You'd rather just have somebody who hasn't consumed anything behind the wheel than end up having to fight all of that and go through that court battle. But the bottom line, especially during holiday season when everybody's having a little bit of something, impaired is impaired is impaired. Source doesn't really matter. If you're impaired, yes. Right. Okay, let's take some calls. 604-280-9898. Bob, thanks for waiting. We appreciate that. Good afternoon. Yeah, I'm one of these people that don't drink and drive, and I'm one of these people, Kyla, that every time they pull me over and they ask me where I've been, I I tell them, I'm sorry, that's none of your business, I'm not going to talk, right? And you know what they do to me then? They say, well, you just better pull over here, and then they harass me. That's what I was talking about earlier, Bob. I see, I see the police officers see that as a negative, they see you as giving them attitude, and they stop you. So what do they do then? Then they, well, well, all it does is, then, then they start, they, of course, they've got my registration, my driver's license, they take it, put it back, they run my tag, they run me, and then they come back to, come back, and they say, you know, you should be more cooperative, blah, 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 and they give me my stuff back, and I said, look, I just don't drink and drive, so, so why are you guys harassing me? And then they let me go, but I mean, it, every time, I'm telling you, I don't let, I, I don't go through one stop and answer their questions. 
and every time I'm har- I'm harassed for at least 15 to 20 minutes. See, I didn't even know you could do that, Bob. I didn't even know you could just say, no, thank you. I choose not to answer your questions. You, and, that, you know and, that, and that is perfectly legal. Yeah, and, and you know what? Maybe it's the way that it's, um, I'm not going to answer your questions <laughs> that upsets them, or I, I don't know. But I mean, like... Every time, and, and I'll tell you what, this year, if it happens to me, I'll do the same thing, right? Okay, now, Bob, we've got Kyla Lee sitting right across the desk from me here looking very pensive. Now, could you <laughs> offer, Bob, a, 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 a phrase to use other than, I'm not going to answer your questions? What else can Bob say that'll, that'll clearly identify his position without making him appear to be a guy with attitude? A classic line that we always recommend is, lawyer told me not to talk to you. Oh, there you go, oh. Bob. That's going to be interesting. <laughs> Try it out. Much. Okay, well, good luck. Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Uh, Claudio, hello to you. Yeah, Claudio, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, I made a left turn on a, a left turn on a main street with the level lines. Mm-hmm. And the cop gave me a ticket. For- okay, hang on just a second. R- repeat the, the infraction for us again, Claudius, okay. please. I made a left turn from a shopping center on a main road. Yeah. And the road had a two double solid lines. Right. So you, 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 you crossed a double solid line. That's, yeah, a, that's, that's an offense, isn't it, Kyla? It is an offense under the Motor Vehicle Act to cross a double solid line. So okay, so I have to pay the fine for that, I guess, right? Well, you can dispute the ticket anyway. Yeah. You've got oh, 30 so I days to do the that. Ticket. But at the same time, I, told, I asked a cop, there are other people who are going and they did not stop them. So how come I'm discriminated? So I asked him, oh, we don't have enough police officers. That's all my fault. Ah, so it should be given a ticket. Well, you're, and, and I'll take your point there because you, it's true. You, it's like being picked out uh, at the airport. Your passenger number seventeen in the lineup today. You're going to get your bags examined. Why? Because your passenger number seventeen. Nothing to do with anything you exhibit in terms of behavior or anything. This guy took a left hand turn out of a shopping uh, mall over a double line and got nicked. Other drivers had probably done it before and after him, Kyla, and mm-hmm. they didn't get a ticket. And he's feeling a little chill. You know, I asked an officer about that on the stand one time about why he stopped my client when everybody else was also speeding. And right. He just smiled and said, can't catch them all. Ah. Kind of makes sense. Well, it's true. So in that case, Claudius, you were just the random person, the unlucky one that they happened to spot making the uh, illegal uh, left turn. Jason, hello. Oh, I had Jason on the line there for a second, or I thought I did. Nope. Okay. So, uh, as far as the silent treatment goes, again, I, I'm uh, I'm surprised to find out that it is as legit as 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 it is. I I uh, even and Bob, you see, Bob art- articulated what I was thinking, what a lot of us are thinking. If you don't cooperate the way they want you to, then you're you're seen as giving them attitude. You're being, and I use the word belligerent. How can you be belligerent by saying nothing? But that's attitude. And they pick up on that real fast. I think you made a good point about this um, during the break, which was that a lot of this comes from our polite Canadian society. Oh, yes. As Canadians, we're trained to be polite. We're, we're taught to, you know, respond respectfully to police officers. And generally, police officers will engage you in a respectful way in conversation. True. So it can be a little bit of a shock to get a response that's, I'm not going to participate in this. 
Okay. So now uh, let's talk about impairment uh, by cannabis versus impairment by alcohol. We're back to that again because I think we need to. You and I have had this conversation, oh, I'm thinking now at least a half a dozen times in 2019, Ms. Lee. Mm -hmm. And apparently uh, we need to do it some more because cannabis for some reason is seen to be, well, you, you, you don't see people typically falling down or walking into lampposts after they've smoked a joint rather than drank a bottle of gin, which is the, the effects, the intoxication effects appear to be quite different. And yet, you're, if you're stoned, you're stoned, and it doesn't matter how. That's true. Um, how it plays out on your ability to drive is also vastly different. And, and it's one of the reasons why that CAA study uh, frustrates me a little bit, because they say it doesn't matter whether you're impaired by alcohol or you're impaired by cannabis, the effects are the same. That's right. They say the effect is no different and both decrease reaction times. I'm quoting from the survey here. And while that's true, that alcohol, of course, decreases your reaction time, and as does cannabis, studies have shown that drivers who are uh, have consumed cannabis are able to accommodate the decreased reaction time, and they can predict events uh, that are about to happen. They, they increase their following distances on the road, they drive slower to account for the fact that they have a decreased reaction time. So your perception of your impairment is different, which mm. means your reaction to it on the road is different. And to that extent, they're not the same because drivers are actually able to compensate with alcohol. You don't really realize what's going on. Now, you sound like you've had a go at this in, in a courtroom kind of scenario where all the facts are rigidly tested. I've read a lot of scientific research on the issue. Um, it's come up a lot. They even did a recent study um, in British Columbia and found uh, a recent study in British Columbia and one out of Toronto that found that there was no significant effect on the ability to drive at higher blood drug concentrations. And so, again, cannabis and alcohol are a lot different because if you drink a lot and your blood alcohol levels over the limit, you're going to be affected in your ability to drive. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could smoke a ton and be affected for a period of time, but still have THC registering in your system, but no impairing effects whatsoever. Interesting stuff. Now, we talked earlier about the testing devices available to the Canadian authorities with respect to roadside uh, testing for cannabis uh, impairment. Uh, and you said there's uh, uh, kindly that there's uh, uh, there's room for improvement and lots of room for discussion and argument in court. Are the testing devices for alcohol more precise and therefore less contestable? Yes, um, they use technology that's been sort of tried and tested over over years and years and years. And there are things, of course, that can affect the precision or the reliability of of roadside breathalyzers or alcohol testers at the police station. But those effects are often able to be accommodated for by proper scientific procedures leading up to taking the sample and internal standards that are run by the device. We don't see those same things happening when you're doing roadside tests for, for THC. There are no standards that are used to check the calibration of the Drager Drug Test 5000. The roadside breathalyzers are checked for calibration every 28 days. So that, that in and of itself concerns me. So is this all just part of it being a new thing that is uh, taking its time to establish parameters for case law consideration, those sorts of things? Oh, absolutely. Because this is new technology, we haven't seen the limits of the technology, we haven't seen the pitfalls of the technology, and we haven't had a really good opportunity to test it. 
part of the problem with that is that the Canadian government and the manufacturers of these devices have an agreement not to sell them to defense lawyers. And so the people who would be looking for the flaws, identifying where improvement is needed and helping to make these devices better at doing their jobs are actually prohibited from doing any of this. And you're seen as the enemy. Yes. Uh, by those uh, people who have the devices who don't want necessarily the flaws to be uh, as noticeable as they might otherwise be. Exactly. And that, I think, it, it does a disservice to everybody on, on the roadways because if the devices are ultimately found to be fundamentally flawed and all of the results are thrown out, people who might actually be guilty of impaired driving by a drug are going to be let loose. And conversely, people who are innocent might be wrongfully punished. What's the rule? Um, I know, for example, uh, that you can't walk down a city street in Vancouver with a cocktail in your hand having a drink. That's uh, forbidden. That's public uh, consumption. Does that same rule apply exactly with respect to cannabis? So with cannabis, it depends on where you are. Uh, There are certain places that you are allowed to smoke cannabis. You're not allowed to do it in parks and schools within 20 feet of a doorway or anywhere where smoking is prohibited. You're not allowed to do it in a business. You're not allowed to do it in a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're allowed to do it in your home, but not some homes if you live in a condo where it's prohibited. Right, right. So there's actually more rules about where you can't do it than where you can't consume alcohol. But if you are somewhere that's none of those places, then you are allowed to smoke your cannabis products. Interesting, because, you know, in some major cities in America where cannabis is legal, Colorado being one of the first states, the city of Denver, this the largest in the state, is now at the point where they're considering, considering rather, uh, uh, recreational lounges. I mean, there's only 400 bars in uh, no problem going out with your pals to have a drink in the city of Denver, but get together with a group of adults to uh, enjoy uh, uh, some cannabis and a dinner or whatever. There's no place to go. And yet there's a market for it. So uh, it's little by little, that sort of expansion into public consumption is is finally being dealt with. And I think recreational lounges would be really good for the cannabis industry and the legal cannabis industry because you would put people in a position where they're accessing a legal supply of the product. They're seeing how easy it is to obtain and consume legally, and they'd be less likely to participate in this black market or the gray market that uh, a lot of uh, the government and the legal retailers are criticizing as taking away their business. Absolutely. When I'm back to this Canadian Automobile Association you, you brought my attention to earlier, and uh, this is uh, they talk about and you and I talked about it in the spring because about that was about six months after legalization of cannabis and you did a show with us at that time and said no there haven't been any noticeable increases in statistics of uh, uh, DUI uh, by cannabis since six months of legalization you said no difference at all in, in the arrest numbers across Canada. And that really hasn't changed. There have been a couple instances where cities have reported increases in the number of arrests, but largely those have been connected to increases in enforcement. So we saw that in Edmonton. There was a big spike in Edmonton. But there really hasn't been this crisis of cannabis-impaired driving that everybody predicted there was going to be. Now, when we finally are able to consume legal edible products, they've been legalized, but they're not available yet. That's true. They've been a bit, a bit legalized for, what, a couple of weeks? And, and the production of the Health Canada regulation 
ventilators. I mean, if they had their way, they they might be on store shelves by 2030. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we finally have those, I think we might see a little bit more because we did see in the United States, a lot of the impaired driving incidents related to cannabis were connected to people's inexperience with edibles uh-huh. and the different way that they can affect you and sure. the amount of time it takes to become impaired and how long the impairment lasts. Okay, so that may affect the statistics going forward. But so far, now a year plus after legalization nationwide, there's been no perceptible change in terms of uh, impairment with respect to cannabis. That black cloud that was supposed to land over Canada and stay there because cannabis was legal and everyone's going to be driving crazy high and we're going to be horrible. None of that is materialized or not much of it anyway. And I think that's a little frustrating for a lot of people that were legal cannabis users or uh, gray market cannabis users before that have now transitioned to legal, that we didn't have this before in part because of this fear of the boogeyman of Mm -hmm. cannabis impaired driving. Right. And if that's what's been holding us back from, you know, having a lawful cannabis industry and stopping criminalizing people for possessing a plant, you know, that's been a really ridiculous reason not to get on this legalization train a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. Well, no stores, no product, no money. They do recognize that reality in Victoria, and it's starting to sink in a little bit. Happy New Year, Kyla Lee. Thank you so much for coming in again. It's always splendid to have you drop by and pay us a visit and talk to our listeners, and we hope to be able to repeat this a few times in 2020. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year to you, too. Very much. We appreciate it very much, and we'll take a quick break and come right back. And once again, our thanks to criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee for another fascinating visit, and thanks for your calls as well. Up next is Adrian Scoville, president and CEO of the Automotive Retailers Association of BC, with some industry facts that will very much surprise you. That's coming up after Global News to 3 at the top of the hour. Andrew Ferreira is this program's new producer, longtime technical producer, and we have now uh, introduced Ask Andrew as part of our Vancouver Consumer Package every Saturday. In this hour, it's the origins of Boxing Day. Andrew got curious and found out, did some homework, and what's the deal? Yeah, so I always kind of wondered why, you know, Boxing Day, I've only ever really seen it advertised in, like, Canada and, like, the UK gets it as well. But, like, in the States, it's not really a thing. Right. Uh, So apparently the term Boxing Day dates back to the 17th century uh, in England where servants who were serving their masters at home would be uh, would be given a little box full of gifts to bring back to their families because they would have to serve, you know, the, the manor lord or whatever it sure. was uh-huh. on Christmas Day. And, and, as, and as thanks and spirit of the season, the manor lords would then give uh, the servants, a, you know, a goodie box to bring back to their families to celebrate the next day. Uh, another theory where it comes from is churches would, on Boxing Day or the 26th, the day after Christmas, uh, would set out their alms boxes, and that's when they would distribute the alms to to those who needed them. They would give food out. So in that way, was also thought of being kind of a way to give back to people. And as you know, uh, consumerism uh, as it is, it's manifested in in uh, doorbuster sales at five a.m. at Best Buy. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. If you have any questions, you can uh, tweet us at Van Consumer and ask Andrew, and uh, he'll take it on. Another reminder from another veterinarian this week. Ken Cannabis products are not for pets. 
period. Just because products like gummies and brownies and bars are now legal does not make them good for your pet. The high levels of sugar and chocolate alone make them somewhat dangerous. Plus, the THC component make dogs especially experience elevated heart rates, lower body temperature, and loss of coordination. Now, dogs usually recover within 48 hours, but some require a hospital stay, and that gets expensive really quickly. The warning does have an exception, though. CBDs, which contain almost no THC, uh, do not cause negative reactions in pets like products containing THC do. Bottom line, it's all new science. There's still not enough data or evidence available to feel confident about anything yet. Human treats are not for pets. That's our number one of Vancouver Consumer for a cloudy final Saturday afternoon of 2019. I'm Sterling Fox with Andrew Ferreira and Adrian Scoville, president of the Automotor Retailers Association of British Columbia, is coming up after the news with some thoughts about skilled tradespeople. Where the heck have they all gone? Stay with us right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.